Hello. One of the things that's framed this psalm series for us is this idea um, that the psalms often are speaking from three different experiences of life, either of orientation, disorientation, or reorientation. That this is a good way to even map, the, as we'll talk about today, the journey of faith, is that sometimes the sun is shining, everything feels fine, all's right with the world, uh, and there are psalms that speak into that experience, psalms of simple praise, psalms of sort of overwhelming acknowledgement that, man, there is richness and beauty and goodness and love and all of these capital G good things in the world. There are also profound seasons of disorientation, and we've been talking about that a good bit over the last number of weeks, that the psalms especially, you might argue, speak into those moments where all of that feels distant, uh, at least, if not sort of um, entirely absent and, and maybe uh, overturned by just the reality of sin, of death, of loss, of, um, of pain, of all of these things. And so the Psalms also have this beautiful category of lament. And I hope by now you're getting used to hearing that that is... Uh, genre-wise, sort of category-wise, the, the, biggest, um, the, the biggest category in the Psalms, which is to say, more often than not, when God's people in the Old Testament open their mouths in praise or in prayer, it is in the form of crying out to God in disorientation, of crying out to God, how long, O Lord? Crying out to God, why, 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 where are you? Have you turned from us. And so we've been looking at those a good bit. And uh, I've been encouraged, I will say this, is I've been encouraged just by uh, hearing from some of you that I think that that category is, is just never something that's instinctual for us, especially if you've grown up around church, grown up around Christian things. It's just not our first instinct to take all of that raw pain and frustration and doubt and anger even and actually direct that to God. There is this temptation to say, I've got to clean up all of those quote-unquote bad emotions and then go to God when I'm ready with, with good things, with praise and, and those kind of things. And I've heard from several of you that just actually doing what the laments model for us, which is taking that stuff uh, in, its, in its rawest form, without cleaning it up, without needing to, to put some sort of nice spiritual religious sounding spin on it, just going to God with that does have a unique power to it. There's this third experience that, that the Psalms also speak to, which is reorientation, which is when you've been through the pit and you come out the other side of it, there is this strengthening and deepening of faith that, that can actually be in some ways equally difficult to articulate because it's, it's, it's not orientation. It's not everything's sunny and everything's fine and man, everything works just the way it should. It's I've been to a place where nothing works and yet found myself on the other side of it, not just holding on to faith, but in certain ways deepening in faith, deepening in, in my understanding of who God is, of who I am, of, of what it means to follow him and to uniquely have him as my sustenance, as my sustainer through those things. And so many of the Psalms speak on the other side of lamentary reorientation. I think what we have here today is, is really a Psalm of reorientation. It's someone, you can hear it, who has been through some things, who is probably going through some things now, who is, who is not out of touch with the pain and hurt and loss of this world, and yet has experienced some things from God in the presence of God that inform now the way that the psalmist 
praise, the way that the psalmist worships, the way that the psalmist just is in the world. And so I felt like that would be a good way to frame, I think, what's going on here in Psalm 84. There's kind of, there's kind of four things that I see going on here, four kind of lessons about the life of faith that I think need to take, each of them in a way needs to take the whole psalm uh, or it needs to take the psalm as a whole. And so it's a, it's a little bit harder to work through this and section out because I think that there are things going on as a whole. So the first thing that I, I would even love for you to do is hopefully you, at, at this point, many of you I see have a physical Bible in front of you or maybe that's why you're holding your phone. Hopefully that's why you're holding your phone. Um, but if you, if you have a physical Bible, I am just, or, or just any Bible in front of you, I'm going to read back through the psalm and I want you to, if you're bold enough, if you have a writing implement in your hand, I want you to, to just take note, maybe a little line, under every uh, name that is given for God, every description that is given for God. I think it's one of the most interesting things going on in this psalm. You ready? I'm just going to read through this slowly. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God. And specifically there, it's the God of gods in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God then dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. What I love about even reading back through that is something that we said in the introduction to this series, which is, in some ways, what we're doing is contrary to what the Psalms are for. The Psalms are not to be picked apart, like you know, one of Paul's letters or something, and analyzed, uh, who, who wrote much in the New Testament, analyzed line by line. The Psalms are really to be experienced, right? It's poetry, and poetry is more about allowing it to wash over you a couple times before you then dig in and look at what you're looking at. So keep that in mind. Always the Psalms, the Psalms you sort of most, more than any other part of Scripture, you sort of have permission to just allow it to wash over you, to allow the overall impression of it to impact you. But hopefully, as we did that little exercise you were going through and seeing all of these different names, right? The first one that pops out that's actually the one that's used most often of him here is Lord of Hosts. You know what that means? It's one of those great churchy phrases that were all like, I know Lord of hosts. And then you step back and you're like, what does that actually mean? It mean like he is the Lord of anyone who's ever held a dinner party, right? Like um, what is a host? Um, Lord of hosts is actually, host is a military unit. It's an ancient military unit. It's, it's saying that he is the commander. Uh, there's one translation that consistently translates Lord of hosts as the commander of heaven's armies 
pretty good. Because if, if there's sort of a, a military sort of thing that God is, is associated with as, as being over, it's the angelic beings. And so Lord of Heaven's armies is, is a pretty good translation there. Which is interesting because probably as, as I read through the psalm the second time and hearing Beth read it the first time, it's a very, there's a tenderness to the psalm. Right, the, like the last couple of weeks, we've hit you with some grittier psalms. This one has sort of a tenderness to it, and yet the name of God that is used most often here is militaristic. Isn't that interesting? It's um, it's one of power. It's one of very significant authority that he has. And yet it says, "How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints." For the courts of the Lord, my heart and flesh, sing for joy to living God. This is kind of whether you like it or not, this is very romantic language. This, this is the, the, right, this is sort of Shakespearean in how it sounds. My soul longs for the Lord. My flesh faints for you, O Lord of hosts. And one of the things that you'll notice as you go through the psalm, like check out the next time that it's used is in verse 3 talking about this sparrow that finds a home, the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars. Again, this very tender image. Psalmist is, is thinking of the place where God dwells, God's temple. That's the time that this would have been written. He's fondly remembering that, oh man, like, like it's such a, it's such a, a quiet and peaceful and, and such a, a wonderfully natural place that that sparrows and birds, man, like they can set up their nest there. This is a tender image, and yet he addresses that to, O Lord of hosts. And then follows that up with two more names for God, my God and my king, or rather the other way around, my king and my God. This sort of very personal way of speaking of who God is. And sort of on and on, this goes, verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Now, when the Old Testament says, O God of Jacob, it is, of course, talking about a very specific character in the Old Testament, Jacob, but it's also a way of speaking of God's ongoing personal relationship with a specific people. To say God of Jacob is to say God of a specific people, a God who has covenanted himself, this Old Testament language for deep uh, relational commitment, a God who has covenanted himself to a certain people. O Lord God of hosts, my King, my God. O Lord of hosts, God of Jacob. For the Lord God, if you jump down to 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. What is a sun and shield? What's so interesting here is, again, we just fly by these images, and we're supposed to, in a way, just let them wash. Wow, the God is a sun and shield. But when you think about it, the sun is, is, is especially in that day, as we hear even in the psalm, keep in mind the environment we're in. We're in, a, we're in a desert sort of area. So the sun is not your friend in that kind of area. So to say that God is a sun and a shield is actually to associate him with, most scholars would say, that, that the image here is not one of comfort. God is a sun and shield. Instead, it's God is the one who, in a fiery blast, can, can push away that which threatens his people. He is a sun 
and a shield. Those two related to you. Well, how does he shield you? By pushing away that which threatens God's purposes in your life. In other words, this is an image of justice. This is an image, of course, that the rest of the scriptures are very clear. It always, almost always associates the judgment of God. When God comes and eliminates sin from the face of the earth, it associates it with a kind of cleansing fire. That's what's being said here. God is, is sun and shield. And yet he's also the one who bestows, this translation says favor and honor. That word favor there is the Old Testament word for, for the New Testament concept of grace. He's the one who gives grace. You know what grace is? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And favor is, is this idea of sort of unmerited um, movement toward us relationally. Hopefully you're getting the point. The use of terms for who God is here, almost throughout the entire psalm, are always, I'll use the fancy word for it, are sort of juxtaposed. Do you know what that word means? They're, they're contrasted. They stand next to each other to make a point in standing next to each other. How can it be that the Lord of heaven's armies, who commands angels, who will one day judge the earth and expel all sin, is also the God who makes space for sparrows? And maybe more to the point, make space for, for me, for you, relationally, who covenants himself to us. I think one of the things that Psalm 84 is trying to remind us of is the, I want to use another big word with an X in it, paradox, is the paradox of worship, is, is, the, is, is the need, if that word means nothing to you, it's the need to hold two things together in order to properly relate to God. We've got to hold two things together to properly relate to God. We've got to understand that he is the Lord of heaven's armies. That he is the creator of the universe who through a word from his mouth spoke quasars and black holes and all of these things into existence. We must come in a position of understanding that he is eternally other than us. That he is not just our buddy. We must stand, we must fear God in order to properly relate to him. We cannot reduce him to the size of our own human capacities. He is infinitely greater. He is infinitely mightier. He is ultimately sovereign in a way that we are not. And to relate to him as something other than that is to, is to reduce him in a way that dishonors him. Right? And so to properly relate to him. Because here's what many of us do, right? When you, when you even think about something like prayer, if you're like me, most of us think of prayer as a kind of 911. Right? Most of us, most of the time, right, don't, don't need sort of uh, some sort of emergency help um, or, you know, whatever, your, your dryer goes, and now's the time where you've got to call the Maytag man or whatever those commercials were back in the day, right? When something goes wrong, we need expert service. We need assistance. And for many of us, the only time that relating to God becomes urgent is when we perceive ourselves to be in need. When we, by our own definition of ourselves, say, wow, this is a time where I can't handle this on my own, and therefore I need to call upon some expert assistance. And to lower God to the level of a kind of personal assistant that's there only when you need him is to not properly 
relate to him, is to dishonor him. It is also to deny ourselves the full power and weight and authority and might of the one who welcomes us to address him, right? When there's a true expert, when there is something, someone greater than you and you reduce their role, not only are you dishonoring them, you're actually harming yourself because you're not actually benefiting from the, full, from the fullness of what they can bring to you, right? So we have to be careful not to reduce God. Now, some of us get that part. We do that part really well. We are in awe of God. We might even be a little scared of God. We might even find ourselves that the thing that keeps us from relating to him in any way is precisely that reality. Is we say, what in the world does that type of power and authority want to do with me? And this is where we need to be reminded that he is also my God and my king. He's also the God of Jacob. He's also the God who makes space for sparrows and for birds. He is the God who bestows grace. Of course, in order to get anything from God, it must be grace, because what could we be owed by a being like that? And yet that is who he is. And so we can make him so great that we forget that there is also this other side. We've got to hold two things together in order to properly relate to God. And so, yes, he is the God. I I love how one scholar put this, that the sovereign power of the universe is also the center of my personal life. That the one who makes all things cohere in the universe is also the one who makes all things cohere in my individual story and life. Isn't that incredible? (laughs) Because if God is merely sort of this... um, like estranged, detached, sovereign, then he's never going to be close enough to be related to in the way that he has left heaven's throne in order to relate to us. It was so that he might be your God, your king, not just God and king, but your God and your king, my God and my king. That's the whole purpose of what he's done. So we don't want to lower him to this sort of cheap assistant. We also don't want to make him this distant, aloof ruler. Somehow it's in holding those two things together that yes, that's who God is. Yes, that's what it looks like to relate properly to him. You might have heard it throughout the psalm too, the second thing. If the first thing is sort of, there's two things that we need to hold together, the greatness, the bigness, but also the, the, the desire for relationship that is at the core of who God is. If, if that's the first lesson, the second one is that um, that faith is a journey. Maybe you hear that throughout this entire psalm. There is this reality that, that the scriptures again and again and again, not just here in the psalms, but throughout the scriptures, speak of faith as, as a journey, as going somewhere. And journeys have ups and downs. Journeys have wonderful moments of looking out and saying, hey kids, look at that incredible view. And then there are moments where Everybody's yelling in the car, and you just want to be there, and everybody's asking, are we there yet, right? Journeys, uh, I love that image, because journeys have really wonderful aspects to them, and journeys have brutal (laughs) aspects to them. But you hear it here. In fact, this psalm is almost certainly, um, if not like technically in this category, because a lot of these are grouped together in the psalms, it's what's uh, historically called a psalm of ascent, Um, 
A-S-C-E-N-T, ascent, a psalm of ascent, where um, a few times a year, God's people uh, in the Old Testament would go to Jerusalem for these various festivals. We've heard this throughout the Gospel of John as we've been working through that. You go for the festival of booths, and you go for Passover, and you go for these various things, and everyone would be going. And Jerusalem, especially where the temple is, is sort of, uh, it, it's, it's on a little bit of, of a mountain, not as high as what I pictured, but when you see pictures of it, it's sort of on this mountain. And so there was this sense that as you were going, just imagine this, by the way. We have nothing, I was trying to think, we have nothing remotely similar to this, where we all travel to the same place in order to experience, to, to have this sort of shared experience together. Okay, this is like if we, I don't know, if all Americans went to the exact same place to watch Fourth of July fireworks. Like, that's the one time that I feel, like in our community, it's like an interesting thing where you're like, wow, there's a lot of people in our town, and the one thing that gets us all together is fireworks, right? Like, I don't know what that says about anything, but like, it's interesting. But imagine if somehow that was like, yeah, we all go to like, I don't know, like Cedar Rapids, Iowa or something, I'm trying to think of somewhere right in the middle of the country, and everybody goes there. Well, as you went, you would sing these songs that that sing about your anticipation of what you're going to experience when all of God's people are together at the unique place where God's presence dwells. And you're going up, so they're called Psalms of Ascent. So there was a literal journey that this was written in order to sort of be the accompaniment to. This was the soundtrack. This was the Spotify playlist on that particular road trip when you would go to Jerusalem. What's cool in this psalm in particular is that clearly the psalmist broadens that, though, to life in general and says, man, life is a lot like the journey we take a couple times a year up to Jerusalem. He says, starting in verse 5, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go, go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God. Blessed is the one whose strength is in you. Why? Because there's a journey to take. And that journey is ultimately towards Zion, which was, which was one of the ways that in the Old Testament they described this place where God's presence uniquely dwells. But in order to get to Zion, you've got to go through the Valley of Baca, which is hard to locate. Um, it's not something that's mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament. And in fact, the word baka could also be the word for weeping. So this could be metaphorical. It could be as you go through the valley of weeping, it becomes a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. So there's a journey to be had toward the presence of God, but between... The beginning of that journey and the end of that journey is this desert area, this, this valley of Baca, this, this, this valley of weeping, this valley where tears are the norm. And yet somehow in that very place, not in spite of that place, but in and through the experience of going through that, it's like, it's like that place springs forth with fresh water. Pools to drink from, pools to jump in when you're cold, pools to bathe yourself in when you're sweaty and dirty from the journey. Somehow, if, you're, if your strength is in God, that's what the journey begins to feel like. That yes, you're going through the valley 
of weeping. Yes, you're going through desert times in life. It's a journey. There's wonderful times. I'm sure that within some of these desert things, there were certain spots they would stop and say, wow, look out at that view. That's beautiful. But in general, you're just really hot and thirsty most of the time. And yet, if your hope, if your trust is in this very God, the God who commands angel armies, but also is close enough to see you and your specific needs and any given step on that journey, that's the very place where sustenance comes, where rejuvenation comes, where strange strength shows up. There's a phrase that we came to use in our family after my mom's death where we would talk about small mercies. And we would say, you know what, this is a time where the big questions feel too big um, and where the hurt is so significant that like, we're going to have to put off some of that for a while and just cling on to the fact that there's these little small mercies along the way. I don't know, a, a phone call here, someone who meets a need in a moment, right? So many of those small mercies come through God's people in those moments. I think of those small mercies as like these little pools that show up in the Valley of Baca. And I know that some of you have been through these times as we've spoken, I've sort of picked up on this language of like just small mercies along the way. And it says, yeah, if you've been through that, remember, this is a psalm of reorientation. This is not looking around and saying life is great. This is looking around and saying, no, I've been through it, but I've learned some things in the valley. I've learned some things. I've learned that there can be pools, that there can be refreshment. It's not, it's not some some easy journey. It's not like all around you are just fruit trees blossoming everywhere you look and just pick away. No, no, it's still a desert. But it's amazing if you trust God in the midst of it, it's like somehow he gets you through. Can anyone speak to that? Somehow he gets you through and you look back and you go, wow, he like knew exactly when it had been enough and gave me a little bit of water. That's what the psalmist is saying here. I think that there's a there's another there's another aspect to this. And and I'll try and say this briefly, but this is one of the ways that Psalm impacted me this week, this time around. Is I also think that what's being spoken of here is that there's a kind of journey from life as we normally know it into the presence of God that can feel like miles. And for many of us, we resonate with that. Whatever you want to call that, you want to call that right the Christians, whatever, uh, even Christians in this country, have called it many different things. Do you have a quiet time? Do you spend time with Jesus? Um, do you have a devotional life? Do you have, a, do you have a contemplative life? Right? Like we have all these names for it, but it's always this acknowledgement that it's got to be part of the normal Christian life that you relate to God in some meaningful way, in some ongoing way. Right? Like call it whatever you want it. There's got to be space in your life where you relate to God, where that reality of He's my God and my King is actually uh, in, in real time and space activated by some sort of practice that you have, right? And we are at pains through our discipleship courses to give you some of those practices. Say, this is what that could look like in your life. It doesn't look the same probably for most of us, but there's gotta be that. And yet most of us really struggle with that, right? I knew I wouldn't get amens on that, but I'm getting sh- sort of like subtly shaking heads, hoping no one's looking to the right or the left, right? We really struggle with that because the journey from normal life into the presence of God can be one of the, the longest journeys that our heart has to take on any given day, 
let alone in any given season. And I think that that's part of even what's being picked up here, is this idea, I, I just love this phrase, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. Think about that. In whose hearts are the highways to Zion. In other words, there's a type of blessedness that comes from having a well-worn path in your heart from your everyday normal life, call it, into the presence of God, in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. You ever known someone like this? I've known a few people like this, and I'd say they are blessed because that, that path has been cut through so many times that there's a highway to Zion. I, love, I find that image really compelling to say, I want to be the type of person who has a highway to Zion in my heart. Amen? So how do you do that? You've got to somehow go down that path enough times that it's trampled under your feet, right? You ever done that? In a backyard, in the woods, you know, behind your house when you're going up or whatever, or a camp that you went through, and there's a place that people tend to go, and it ends up looking like, I think of the, the path that we have, that we go on in, in our town, and you can tell where people normally go. It's a well-worn path. So you've got to walk down it enough. I think one of the things that, that, this psalm is speaking to, verse 7, they go from strength to strength as each one makes their way to appearing before God. You know what I think that that's saying? Is unlike most journeys where the end is the hardest part, this journey, the beginning's the hard part. Most of the time, right, if you are on some kind of journey, Getting through those last couple of miles, those last couple of whatever, right? Think of if, if you grew up being an athlete, right? The last 20 minutes of practice were always the hardest. Why? Because you've done all this stuff previous to it, and now you've got to push to the end. This is saying this journey actually goes from strength to strength. In other words, strength builds. It's, it's a, that's a Hebrew idiom for you get more strong as you go along this path. And again, I think that this just speaks to the dynamics of the heart in relating to God. That starting, and this could be starting if you've never had any kind of spiritual practice, starting's really hard. This can also just be the reality that on any given day, I'll tell you my deal, there is a particular chair that I sit in to spend my time with God. Sometimes the journey from my couch to that chair is the longest journey of my day, right? Because there's YouTube and there's sports and there's all these other things. And just sitting my behind in that chair can feel like where so much of the battle for me to relate to God comes in. And yet, the more that I get up and go to that chair, I actually had a mentor who used to say, there should be a place you go to meet with God. Like within, within your... Make it a chair, make it a particular place at, at your dining room table, whatever it is. Go there because then when you read these Psalms, you say, I know what that's like. I know what it's like because you know what happens? As soon as I go there, all of this stuff becomes real. Goes from theology to practice. It's like, oh, it's so much better to sit here and to be in your presence and to be reading your word for a half hour than just another half hour of YouTube. It's so much better. God, it is so much more fulfilling. It is from strength to strength rather than sort of the slow drain of life that every other distraction I tend to choose is. It's so much better to be here with you. So I want to go into the presence of God. 
but it goes from strength to strength. Those, those first steps are the hardest. You resonating with that? Am I talking to anyone? Um, I'm not saying that in like a preacherly way. Like, right? Do you resonate? Like, that is so deeply my experience. That I was like, that's what he's talking about. And yet, as we go and we make that path well-worn, those highways, most importantly, not in our homes, but in our hearts, begin to develop. And it's like we, we, we have the, the express route to the presence of God. This is a journey. Last two. The first one is we've got to hold these two things together to relate properly to God. If the second one is the journey, uh, the life of faith is always a journey. It's a journey in, in all of the complex ways that that metaphor resonates with you. The third one is that relating to God is always a fight for our joy. What do I mean by that? <clears throat> I would circle, underline, highlight, uh, type out, put it in calligraphy, buy the sign at, uh, what's that place? Hobby Lobby. Um, of verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. Check this out. One of the most important concepts that your heart can ever absorb. No good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. The wrong way to relate to God is to say, God wants me to be holy. And what holiness is, is denying myself all the stuff that makes life fun. So I just really got to be holy. And all of the stuff that I used to do, I now can't do to show God just how much I love him because I'm denying my stuff, myself the stuff that he and I both know full well is actually the stuff that makes human life worth living. Now that's an extreme version of it. But that is the language of many hearts. To be faithful to God is to deny ourselves joy. To be faithful to God is to say no to the things that make life worth living. But the whole point is by saying no to the things that make life worth, we really show God how much we appreciate what he's done for us. It's like the ultimate payback. That is a distortion of what God has come to do in our lives. That is, that, is a, that is a false view of holiness. It is a false view of God. It is a false view of what the life of faith is. When God calls us to a new life, he asks us to deny life as we've known it, not to deny ourselves greater joy, but to embrace greater joy. Not to deny ourselves life to the full, but because for the first time, because we have been redeemed in him, we have an opportunity to live life to the full. That holiness is our heart's deepest longing. That holiness is the source of our greatest joy. But if you're like me, what makes even a word like holiness, one that you go, ooh, like, ooh, they're talking about that holiness thing in church, is you think of holiness and you think of doing all the right religious things and saying no to all the things that the bad people out there do. When holiness is actually God's invitation into life as he intended it to be. And what Jesus does on the cross by bearing your sin, taking the full weight of it, is he doesn't just forgive you of your sin so that now you have a clean slate and now you've got to build up favor with God. 
No, he transforms you into a new creation, makes you a new kind of being that now is actually able to live as God intended you to live. That's the gospel. That's actual good news. It is not good news if God merely forgives you and then says, now it's on you to pay me back and show me how much you appreciate what I've done. I don't know about you, but that would terrify me. What is good news is God has rescued you and now made it possible for you to finally walk in the way that he created you to walk. But here's the fight. When you think of holiness, if you think of denying yourself, you also think of God withholding. Okay, I can't do that because God just doesn't want me happy. I can't do that. Mm. Everything in me says, if I got to do that, Oh, then, oh, there would be so much joy in the world. But God says, no. So, so, okay, like, appreciate what God does. That very soon becomes not just, right, because the heart can only so long live off of obligation to God. Can I put it that way? It gets exhausted with that, and then eventually it returns to a place where it says, I think God's just withholding. I think he's the cosmic killjoy. I think he doesn't, doesn't want me happy. Because I am, I'm watching culture, I'm, I'm watching the lives around me. The psalmist is talking about this all the time. Man, it looks like the world's having a blast, God. Why does it look like the wicked prosper? Why do I watch movies and TV shows and they're doing the stuff that I'm denying myself and they seem happy as can be? Must be that God's withholding. He's withholding. Your fight... I can almost guarantee you, this one I'm not even asking for acknowledgement. I've been, I've, I've been in the game long enough to know the language of your heart is, is God withholding from me? And if you can settle, if you can somehow make this a well-worn path where this truth gets to the very bottom of your soul, that no good thing does God withhold to those who walk uprightly. All of a sudden, the things he's calling you to We'll, we'll, we'll take the shape that they're meant to, which is it's an invitation to joy. It's an invitation to flourishing. Think of the thing that you struggle with most, the thing that you think God has denied you. And probably at the base of it, you say, yeah, God's withholding. He's not withholding from you. What if I could really convince you of that? What if I could really convince my heart of that? God is never withholding. If he gives it to you, you need it. If he doesn't give it to you, you don't need it. And it's not just you don't need it. It ain't good for you. Because what he gives us is for our ultimate good. Now look, his definition of ultimate good is different. It's different than ours. It certainly help us. Different than cultures. But in 10,000 years, we will look back what this is saying. And we will say, no good thing did he withhold from me. That's really hard to believe. And I would say it's the words, it's the kind of truth that can only come from someone who's been in the pit, okay? You don't say this kind of thing in orientation. Isn't life great? Everything just works, doesn't it? God just doesn't withhold anything from us. You ever heard that kind of truth? And you go, oh, honey, like you just need to live a little, right? But you talk to someone who's been through it. You talk to someone who's stared death and loss in the face. You talk to someone who's, who's, whose deepest sin has been revealed and yet they've clung to God. And they say, you know what I've learned about God? He's not a withholder. He's good. He's good even when it doesn't feel like it. 
That's what we're hearing here. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. If there were ever a verse to memorize, it's this one. Work this deep into your heart. Pastor in, in uh, Minnesota, John Piper, that some of you know, he calls this a fighter verse. Fight with your soul with these words. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. You walk uprightly, he's not going to withhold anything from you. Isn't that beautiful? Jeremiah says elsewhere, one of the prophets in, in the Old Testament, I hadn't seen this until this week, and I was like, wow, that is incredible. In Jeremiah 5, just listen to these words. 5.25, he says this. Uh, I'll start in 23. This people have a stubborn and rebellious heart. They've turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, <clears throat> and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have kept good from you. Your sins have kept good from you. Okay, here's what I know you know. You know that on the other side of sin. Why did I do that? Ah, I'm miserable now. Why did I do that? I with, this sin withheld good from me. And yet there's something about our hearts. They're so, our hearts, right? They're just so much. That, that it's really hard to get that truth before. It's really hard that when you're struggling with a given sin, when you're struggling with a given temptation, to say, no, I refuse to allow this sin to withhold good from me. Woo! You ever fought with sin like that? That's powerful. That's powerful to say, no sin, you're not going to withhold good from me. Instead of, ooh, I could do that sin and experience some good, but God's going to be mad at me. You hear how different the language of those are? You hear how different that is in how we relate to God? Look at your sin this week and say, I refuse to let you withhold good from me. Last thing. Um, we've said in every week that we've done this, the reality of Jesus changes the way we read the Psalms. Jesus is just all over this Psalm. <clears throat> For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Which, by the way, um, the, the literal language, right, like some of you know the song and even... Uh, Steve was talked out of singing, better is one day. Um, but uh, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I just love this this week. This is like one of those little things that was helpful to me. It says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand that I'd choose otherwise. <laughs> like, I always choose wrongly. And then I get in your presence. And I'm like, this is better. And I've done that a thousand times. That's what he's saying. Isn't that helpful? Then the psalmist start to sound like us? Really good poetry, really beautiful lyrics, but you go, oh, they get it. They get it. They get how the heart works. Better is one day in your courts. Better is one day than a thousand that I choose. No, this will be great. This will actually satisfy, and I've done that a thousand times. Rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Most scholars say it's a pretty light translation. It's more like I'd rather be a beggar sitting outside of the temple then have a, a cozy, nice place among those who want nothing to do with God. Just, just to have that nearness to God. To associate with that group of people, a needy, marginal group of people, is far more glorious 
than dwelling, than having a place, than being one of, one of them and being embraced by that community. Why? Because God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord, for us blessed is the one who trusts in you. What I love about this is um, going back to the previous one too. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. So just, just look at verse 9. Who's the shield? Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. Just basic syntax there. Who's the shield? Not God. Look at our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. The shield is the anointed one. The anointed. This Old Testament image of when the high priest was put in place, they would anoint that one. When the king was put in place, they would anoint that one. And then you have all of this that comes together in the person of Jesus, such that the, you know what the Greek word for this is? For the anointed? It's Christos. It's Christ. It's Messiah. That's what we're talking about here. Lord, your shield is your Messiah. You know what he's saying? He's saying, O Lord God of hosts, in awe, big God, hear my prayer. Give ear to me. Then he says, but you've got to look upon my shield and you've got to look upon the Messiah. You know what he's saying? The fact that you listen to my prayers is dependent on the fact that I have a shield in the anointed one. In other words, my relationship to your anointed one, to the Messiah, is what makes it possible for me to have the audacity to ask you to see me and to look upon me and to hear my prayers and to relate to me. That, that verse 8 is dependent on verse 9. So too in verse 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows grace and honor. We said that sun here is almost certainly speaking of judgment. It's the fire of judgment. It's the weight of judgment. It's the, the pulsing energy of judgment upon the world. But God is also a shield. Who was just called the shield? The anointed one. So God is the sun, but he's also the shield. In other words, God is the one who brings judgment, and yet God is also the one who can protect you from being part of that judgment, even though all of us deserve that judgment. He is a son. He is also a shield. And that shield has a name. That shield is Jesus. That shield literally came. And in spite of the fact that each of us is complicit in all of the brokenness of the world, right? And yes, we are sinned against. And yes, we experience the results of the fall, and we lament in those. We are also complicit in making this world the Valley of Baca. We have caused tears in other people's lives. And so we should be part of that burning, purifying fire, and instead we receive a shield. Who himself, what does a shield do? A shield takes the impact. A shield absorbs what, you, what your body and soul and heart would have absorbed. And Jesus stands and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He becomes sin. He becomes our rebellion. He becomes all of the worst things that we are. He becomes our shield. And because he is our shield and he absorbs it, then we become who he deserves to be. We become sons and daughters of the God of heaven's armies. We become sons and daughters who can have the audacity to call him my God and my king. And so, don't you see how, how grounding this in Jesus all the more makes us realize how majestic is he? How amazing is he? 
that this is the God who had the power to be our shield and yet chose to do it for us. Do you see how that holds those two things so beautifully together? That he is with us on the journey because he himself took a journey from heaven's throne to a criminal's cross on our behalf. Do you see that Jesus died not to make you miserable? Not to make you holy and miserable? Not to make you grateful and in his debt? He died to bestow grace and honor upon you in spite of yourself, to give you what you didn't deserve. And now he says, come, come, relate to me. Speak to me. Be in my presence. Get up off the couch. Go sit in the chair. Let's talk. Let me fulfill you. Let me change you. Don't you remember how good and sweet it is to be in my presence? He's talking about the temple. You know what the temple is in the New Testament? It's two things. It's us. It's within us. We are called the temple. And so this is partially talking about, yeah, these highways need to be in our hearts. It's also talking about us, right? It says that we are living stones being built into a spiritual house for God himself. You should look forward to coming to church. There is something unique about what happens here on Sunday. There is a nearness of God's presence that we should anticipate. But I love that it also acknowledges, but that can't be the only thing we do. Right? We go back out into the world because the world is the Valley of Baca and it needs to be made into a spring and a pool. And so we go with this truth that we have experienced something in God's presence and yet we also know we get to go back. We always get to go back. Why don't you close your eyes? I'm going to read this psalm over you and just allow you to experience it one more time and then transition us to communion. Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young in your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength, as each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts 